Hello and welcome to episode five of The Crit. My name is Christina Rapatsky. I'm one of your co-hosts. And I'm Ollie Stratford. I'm your other host. Today we're doing things slightly differently, as well as looking through some of the recent news from design and architecture. We're also going to be looking over Decennio 28, the new issue of the Quarterly Journal of Design, which we did. It's our project. Us. <laughs> Us on, on the yeah, podcast. but in, in print. It's now on newsstands, so please do go out and buy. Yeah, we're going to do a, a big old plug at the end. But first, we're going to talk about a number of stories, as per usual. So maybe we should start with Game of Furniture. So this is the news that IKEA is entering the world of esports and gaming. They have put out their first range of dedicated desks, chairs and accessories for gamers, developed in conjunction with the company Republic of Gamers. I think it's around 30 different types of products. Um, mostly, the, I mean, the main furniture bits are desks and a series of task chairs. And what else? The rest, I think, are accessories, primarily. It's like cup holders, it's sort of filing cabinets with hooks on you can put your earphones over. So yeah. they're kind of moderately tweaked existing furniture categories for gaming. It's a very strange collection in a lot of ways, and the idea of gaming furniture is quite odd as a whole. How how different are these are these furniture items from like your regular task chair or your regular wide desk, I wonder? They're a bit more kind of digitally accommodating, like the desk has a USB plug and that type of thing. Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know, gaming chairs have been a thing for a while, and they're sort of a little bit like a combination of a task chair so you can adapt them and then a bit like the bucket seats you get in racing cars or something they're often styled quite aggressively and they look very macho and they'll have a very big bold branding on the back very u.s sports teams i suppose Uh, i mean one of the ergonomic gamer chairs that i found had like um foam horns uh, attached to the back you know neck rest so that it looks like you're some sort of demon uh maybe that's one of the more extreme cases but on the whole they look kind of like i don't know like like the love child of a task chair and a and a transformer you know i think they're there principally to support e-gaming and like that world they really lean into this notion of games as competitive sport I think what's quite nice about the IKEA collection, at least on the chair front, is that they look much more like office task chairs. They're a lot more anonymous and pared back. They have a sort of lighter footprint. They're not quite so heavy and macho and all-encompassing. And IKEA have said the aim is to reach out to broader categories of gamers with it. So uh, Ewa Reichert, the global business leader of Workspace at IKEA, said... The needs of billions of gamers around the world are very diverse, whereas the existing offer is rather technical and often perceived as masculine design-wise, despite around 46% of gamers being female. We believe there's a lot to be done to democratise the gaming experience. I think there is a question, though, as to whether gaming is an activity that particularly needs bespoke, dedicated furniture to support it. I mean, 
it needs something ergonomic, clearly, because it's people sat in one place for hours at a time. So some kind of lumbar support or whatever is probably desirable. Whether gaming needs its own bespoke filing cabinets, whether it needs cup holders that can clip onto desks, that I find quite odd. If the argument is we want to appeal to a, a broader demographic of gamers, so we need to pare back the aggressive kind of gamer aesthetic on the chairs and what you're left with is essentially a, a task chair <laughs> uh, you know then then maybe we're kind of approaching this territory of inventing a, a category that's not really even a thing I found myself having flashbacks researching this story to when I was just out of uni and uh, working as a PA uh, and housekeeper for very very wealthy people in Notting Hill <laughs> It's a job ad that's made the rounds and that's been widely lampooned. Ollie, do you want to set it up? Yeah, so this job appeared on Dazine Jobs website and it's an advert to be the personal assistant to Thomas Heatherwick of Heatherwick Studios, so a star designer and star architect. And for anyone who's curious as to how Thomas Heatherwick lives, it seems with a tremendous amount of assistance. Um, so the personal assistant is being tasked with running seemingly everything in Thomas Heatherwick's life, from managing his calendar, his travel itineraries, looking after the building of his house, caring for his children, going to the tailors. It, it's a very long, extraordinary list. I think it's the, the listing, which has, by the way, been taken down, starts off kind of sounding like a pretty regular PA uh, position, I would say, because it has like scheduling and organizing meetings and setting up travel itineraries and, and you know, the, your normal personal assistant type tasks. Uh, <laughs> then it gets a, l- a little bit, a little bit personal when it goes into kind of helping Thomas with his house renovation and um, childcare duties and managing weekend appointments as well remembering birthdays that was i think one of my favorite uh favorite tasks buying personal items for thomas yeah which is left uh, disconcertingly vague <laughs> and finally uh, there's the there's the excellent ad hoc task of making fancy dress costumes for his children for thomas himself it's not specified no <laughs> It's never specified. I think my favourite aspect of the post is under attributes. One of the listed attributes is just always one step ahead, which is uh, very pleasing. And also in its list of desired traits, it includes interpersonal intelligence, understanding, empathy, diplomacy, and then uh, beginning with a capital letter, integrity, then caps are gone, discretion. (laughs) Wow. I don't know. There seems to be a kind of mix of outrage and schadenfreude in just pointing out how silly this kind of uh, ad is. And I don't know, having done that kind of job, it doesn't it doesn't strike me as particularly like this is what wealthy people who have busy schedules basically pay other people to do. He doesn't specify the salary, though. That, and I think that is maybe a, a bit of an issue that people have pointed out. Yeah, I think it's a faux outrage. The role I find is kind of gross, and I think it's very strange that you would want someone to be managing all aspects of your life, and whether you'd want to hire Thomas Heatherwick to run major projects for you when Thomas Heatherwick doesn't seem to be running any aspect of his life is perhaps odd. 
I think some of the online glee over this is Thomas Heatherwick is one of those strange designers who's sort of become a punching bag for architecture and design critics. I think he's someone who it's very fashionable to see as everything that's wrong with design and architecture, and as someone who puts out these very flashy, fanciful projects, which are often not deemed terribly well thought through. And I think some of those criticisms are fair, but there now seems to be a status quo where people really relish going after Thomas Heatherwick. They find it very, very funny. Yeah, they really lean in. Yeah. And I mean, the ad doesn't help. It is a preposterous ad and it's written in a very funny way. So the, the, it calls him Thomas on nearly every line and he starts to sound like a five-year-old and it's a sort of list of instructions <laughs> written by his mother for his care so like he hasn't they haven't helped it but I mean I don't think there would be this level of outrage and glee over it if it were another designer and I suspect quite a lot of the star architects probably have people in similar positions doing similar things oh yeah no doubt So some architecture news which arrived this week, which is London's National Gallery is running an open international competition to find a design team to work on its Sainsbury wing. We remember galleries, right? And museums? No. (laughs) There are relics of the past, like bear baiting and uh, the Colosseum. Yeah, I have a sort of distant memory of uh, going through the Sainsbury wing and looking at them renaissance artworks i mean it's a wonderful place uh the sainsbury wing also has a really special place in architectural history particularly in this country but i think more widely as well it's a design from 1991 it opened 30 years ago um by robert venturi and denise scott brown the the great postmodern architects yeah it's a little bit of a tortured history though because that design wasn't the original design for that space to begin with there was an open competition which was won by abk who proposed a very different design for that site which ultimately uh came a cropper when prince charles came out against it the abk design was kind of high-tech inspired it had a tower it was very, very far away from the from the building we've ended up with. And uh, Prince Charles famously made a, a speech at the Royal Institute of British Architects where he described it as a carbuncle. A carbuncle in the face of a much-loved and elegant friend. Yeah. So um, the much-loved and elegant friend there being the original um, William Wilkins design. Uh, of the main wing of the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square. Yeah, he set out a kind of hostility to, or it was perceived anyway, as hostility towards more modern architecture and arguing that any new development should be in keeping with the original architecture of the surroundings. So I think he said... He said something like he would understand the ABK proposal more if they demolished... demolished all of Trafalgar Square and started afresh then he would be fine with it but he couldn't understand it being tacked on Uh, and he has all these strange things like he doesn't see how um, the renaissance art can be presented unless it's within sort of soft curves which complement the proportions of renaissance art I mean I I think quite a backwards um, 
view, really, but something that completely scuppered that scheme, uh, which led to the to the Venturi Scott Brown building we have today. Which, in many ways, I don't know, isn't a bad thing. It's a much-loved building. It's an extraordinarily successful piece of gallery design. And that is, you know, it's a postmodern masterpiece in its own right. It has um, stylistic and architectural references left, right and centre, but not in an oppressive way. You know, they borrow from from Sone, from the top-lit Dulwich picture galleries. So you have the light coming in, natural light coming in from above. There's references to Egyptian architecture. There's, you know, it's... it. The National Gallery themselves in the competition uh, website say that the galleries are pretty much perfect and what they want to redesign is the entrance sequence into the into the space, which they say the wayfinding doesn't really work. It's also because the main entrance in 2018 of the National Gallery shifted from the old Wilkins building to the Sainsbury Wing. It means that it just there's new it has a new function and then needs to be adapted for that. Yeah, I think it's slightly unusual, though, the competition. It's not a straightforward call for designs, is it? It's actually a call for teams. So they're not at this stage. You're not putting forward your vision of how you're going to mess up Venturi Scott Brown or or whatever. They they want to assemble the teams first and then they'll go on to the design later. Not being an architect, that strikes me as slightly odd. I, w- I wonder how you pick a team without knowing what it's going to do. But, I mean, we we wait and see. Our final news story for this week is a casualty from the luxury fashion world of coronavirus. This is Rihanna's ready-to-wear line, Fenty, uh, which is backed by LVMH, has been discontinued. LVMH have announced that they will no longer continue the footwear and ready-to-wear and eyewear parts of the Fenty line. They will, I think, continue Savage by Fenty, which is the um, lingerie branch of the uh, brand and I think the skincare and cosmetics line as well. Fenty Beauty is carrying on as well yeah. But they uh, they blame the pandemic the fact that Rihanna who uh, is the owner of Fenty the the fact that she couldn't travel to the design team in Paris meant that they uh, couldn't put together the collections as they would have normally um, outside of a pandemic and that there are other logistics uh, challenges to do with uh, with the pandemic but I wonder if you know, maybe there were other teething problems as well, um, because it's only two years old, I think, this this brand. Yeah, it's a real shame. It's a, quite a public failure for LVMH, I'd say, which has only ever built one brand from the ground up before, which is Christine Lacroix. And I think there was a lot of excitement around Fenty when it came out. It was billed as it was going to be very different to uh, existing fashion brands. So someone who didn't have a design background leading it, they weren't going to be doing the kind of seasonal runway so much. It was going to be direct to consumer with these drops. So it was presented very much as a vision of what fashion might become. And it's it's wrecked upon the rocks quite early. I think one of the things that people are pointing out was price point. Rihanna's fan base, it's been argued, is maybe not in a position to pay up to, you know, $400 for a pair of jeans. Yeah, it never seemed to quite know what it wanted to be because I think they wanted to rely upon her social media reach and that would be new and exciting for fashion and a different way of building an audience. But then, as you say... People following Rihanna on Instagram 
possibly just don't have the money to buy very high-end luxury goods, which, to be honest, didn't look that much different to existing streetwear. Yeah, maybe some of them do. I don't know. Um, Savage by Fenty has done much better commercially, and I wonder here if it's, you know, the reason why Savage by Fenty has done so well is because of um, its its weird uh, entrapment of of customers in its VIP membership scheme. Do you remember this from from when it launched? This is its use of dark patterns yeah. and seemingly luring users into uh, a pricey subscription program, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, And I don't know if that it still does this, but initially they had this membership scheme, different membership schemes. I think there's like a monthly one and an annual one. And the way that the website was designed meant that customers who thought they were just buying like a pair of pants ended up uh, in a you know year-long subscription paying $50 a month uh, and not really realizing it until they checked their bank statement and it had to do with how how the checkout and the shopping cart um, page was was uh, was designed and that's you referred to dark patterns there that's um, that's the term for that type of in- user interface design which kind of tricks you into buying things that you don't realize you're buying or tricks you into giving over more information about yourself than you want to yeah what would happen is if you put a piece of lingerie in your bag it would automatically add a subscription as well and that didn't necessarily show up on the bill because it wasn't charged straight away so you'd just see this extra item listed of say monthly subscription to Savage by Fenty which it looked maybe if you didn't look into it as if there was no charge for that and then suddenly you're $50 a month worse off or or whatever Mm. it was. So maybe that's the secret to the lasting success of Savage by Fenty it's just uh, ripping people off by design. (laughs) I think... In in the in the interest of balance and avoiding a lawsuit, <laughs> I'd say that one thing you could say about uh, Fenty, and I think we should mention the cosmetics line as well, is that it was nothing if not modern in a way, and for better and worse. So Savage by Fenty was billed as being very progressive as compared to things like Victoria's Secret. It was much more about body positivity. I think there was a much greater diversity of models used. All of that, very good. Similarly with um, the beauty line, they had foundations, which they had a much wider range of skin tones than you would normally get. That was actually nominated for Designs of the Year. So those very positive, progressive aspects (laughs) to the brand, but then the negative aspects of being more modern, which is probably that use of dark patterns and that slightly manipulative side. That's the e-commerce reality we live in now. So always read the small text, folks. So the second thing we're going to be doing today in place of our usual projects and product section is looking at a project of our own, which is the new issue of Desenio out now, uh, Desenio 28. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stories and the design uh, pieces that are present in that issue. We'd start off by talking about this roundtable that we've done with the friends and students and collaborators and uh, fans of uh, Enzo Mari, the great Italian designer and thinker who sadly passed away in 2020. He died of COVID and his partner, Leo Vergine, died uh, just a few days later, also from COVID. 
a great loss to the design industry and we wanted to pay tribute to him. Yeah, I think Maori's a fascinating figure because he's he's one of those designers from that period of radical Italian design who's so revered and has had such an outsized influence on the subsequent development of the field but also he's someone who stands a little bit apart from design in a lot of ways in the same way in which say Dieter Rams has come to be very skeptical and have a very difficult relationship with design Maori who was a communist had a was a huge believer in left-wing politics and ideas he grew to detest design and had a, a, a very a very rocky relationship with it. One of the people in the round table, Hansel-Rick Obrist, uh, who's a curator at the Serpentine Galleries here in London, but who's also uh, helped put together an exhibition about Mari at uh, Triennale Milano. He tells, he, you know, he tells the story of meeting Mari and interviewing him and speaking to him and becoming friends with him because, Hans-Ulrich says, uh, he was kind of, he stood outside of design. He, he was an art curator. And uh, Mari seemed much more comfortable with speaking to him about his work and his vision. Yeah, and I think he's I think he's quite an exciting figure for contemporary design in a sense because he embodies so many of the conflicts present within contemporary design at a point where design is becoming much more about challenging systems and people want to talk about the political import of design and the cultural value and so on and have a huge sense of unease with design's links to commerce. <laughs> and endless production of product. Mari was someone who was talking about this decades ago, who had this huge anger, I suppose, at this senseless proliferation of products, new things being churned out only for the sake of getting people to buy them. It's it's interesting because uh, many of the people in the roundtable, so the designer Martino Gamper, for instance, and the design historian Kat Rossi, uh, point, both pointed to the fact that uh, Mari was sort of someone that they were aware of in their student days, uh, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't revered and celebrated and kind of uh, an iconic thinker in the way he's he's become today and uh, they both described coming to Mari a little bit later so in the in the 2000s at a time when I think the excesses of our industry were becoming really really blatant but Mari was talking about it much earlier but he kind of it sort of hit home uh, a little bit later um, in the last 10 years or so I would say. Yeah, I think he represents a sort of awkward truth for design because so many of the things he talked about, the need for sustainability, that product should last, the idea that design should be accessible and not this sort of playpen for the rich, are values I think that most practising designers today would say they abide by. But he, you know, so that aspect of his ideology has been taken on, but very little has been done to grapple with his hate. <laughs> of capitalism and commerce and this side and the and the ways in which design is linked into that and feeds that so he's he's i think a lot of designers pay lip service to him and everybody knows that he's right in a sense but no one's really done much to try and to, to grapple with that in a deeper sense, I suppose. I, I mean, I think because it's such a difficult thing to grapple with, I don't necessarily know if Mari himself did hugely successfully. 
Corinna Sai, who's also on the round table, is a designer who led uh, an organization called Kukula, which is which used Enzo Mari's uh, autoprogettazione, the uh, the guidelines to making your own furniture um, from the 70s. And she she um, she invited refugees in Berlin to come and work on on furniture using those guidelines um, a few years ago. And it was a very interesting project. And I suppose that's one of the practical ways in which people are trying to kind of use these ideas, uh, not just the radical thinking, but also the the making uh, that that came with it. (laughs) I wanted just to add before we go on to the next story, as we were editing this, like I've never had to edit out so many, so many swear words out of a roundtable conversation, because apparently, according to Martino, you know, he he was he wasn't afraid to to say that something was, you know, like if a design was was, he'd say it was. I think for me, he's a, he's a refreshing figure because in a field that's so dominated by like press release driven journalism and it's just like, here's this new launch and this new colorway and this new material and here's another sofa and, you know, and all you want to do is for someone to just cut through all of that noise and say, what's what? And he did. Second story we're going to have a look at is uh, COVID-19 and the communication around the vaccination program. So couldn't be uh, couldn't be more topical, really. And Christina, this is actually a piece that you wrote and we're looking into. Challenging story to write because it's obviously an uh, an ongoing situation and very live. But I wanted to look at uh, the public communications around the vaccine rollout in the UK, and I focused on the UK because it was the first country to approve the first vaccine. And I wanted to look at the communications around it, not not the logistics necessarily, because we, we know a lot about that and all the challenges there, but thinking about how to persuade people to get vaccinated. And the context for thinking about that is that there's been in the last 30 or so years, uh, this rise in vaccine hesitancy or scepticism towards vaccines that I wanted to to look at as well and think about why that might be. Yeah, and I suppose one thing that's interesting is anti-vax movements. And as you say, this on the softer side, sort of vaccine hesitancy, a lot of that is fueled by through design means, right? You know, there are memes around this. There's a lot of graphic design, sort of homemade graphic design going up that raises questions around vaccines. And it was interesting, I think, the way you compared that with the sort of official pro-vaccine design being put out by the NHS, for instance. There's a lot of work to be done in this field, I think. And I speak to uh, the director of the Vaccine Confidence Project uh, here in London at UCL. Her name is Heidi Larson. And uh, they've done done studies quite recently, actually, in the last year, uh, looking at uh, COVID-19 vaccines and misinformation around them and comparing the type of anti-vax memes that get circulated online and more reassuring official communications and the uh, the anti-vax stuff is tapping into something like very deep-seated and it's very effective in making people hesitant about vaccines whereas the public communications which are often a lot more anodyne looking you know factual and straightforward and perhaps not very visually grabbing they don't do very much either to persuade people to get vaccinated or to put them off. So uh, there's interesting research being being done, but as I think I found by the end of the piece <laughs> and by the end of researching the piece, 
a lot of vaccine hesitancy comes from a deeper lack of trust in public authorities that we've seen in the last couple of decades. So it's not as easy as making a, a nice pamphlet or a good poster. Uh, it goes deeper than that. From the UK uh, over the Atlantic to another story, which is based in New York City and is the launch of Contemporaries, a new storefront gallery project launched by the designer Stephen Bucks and the curator Malika Leiper. This is another conversation that we wanted to organise. Malika and Stephen found themselves in uh, 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, opening, opening a community space in Dumbo. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know the history of Dumbo, it's sort of a waterfront area that originally had a lot of industry and then was somewhat left for much of the 20th century as as wasteland until it, uh, as inevitably with these things, attracted the interest of developers. And now I think it's it's something ludicrous, like it has the highest concentration of billionaires in New York. So it's that familiar tale of gentrification. But then Stephen and Malika found that they could suddenly afford a storefront in 2020 in Dumbo, which was this unique situation where suddenly all of this like very aggressive and rapid uh, development that has happened in this area uh, in the last 30 odd years had left all these empty storefronts uh, available for the taking. And a lot of the office buildings and storefronts were, were, were empty last year and continue to be. So the opening of Contemporaries, then prompted uh, a conversation with a bunch of other people who live and work in Dumbo or have done projects in Dumbo. They talk about and reflect on not just this recent history of of heavy-handed development, but go back looking further into, you know, the like social housing projects in Dumbo and how they've been affected by the new investment that's come in, which is unfortunately not very much because none of that money is going into social housing. Even if you don't know New York and don't know Dumbo, there's still plenty in there which is of interest. I mean, one thing I find really nice about the Contemporaries Project is they're trying to do something a little bit different with a design gallery space. I think in other cities, we're so used to design galleries being those purveyors of very high-end luxury design, whereas what Stephen and Malika are doing is trying to see if there might be ways to reorientate those spaces so they're a little bit more engaged with their communities so I think for instance a lot of the installations and activations and whatever you want to call them they've had so far are grounded in that local community and local people's collections for instance and it's just a nice experiment and an ongoing experiment still very early days into could a design gallery be something a little bit more active could it play a role in the neighborhood beyond being a purveyor of exquisite objects and I think we wish them all the luck in the world with that. Your story that you wrote for this issue, Ollie, is about the future of the television set. Yeah, I'm always kind of interested in those very everyday objects which everyone has in their home, but which don't typically get treated as design objects. So I suppose I started from the point that there's a general statistic that television watching has gone up during COVID. Kel surprise. People are trapped at home, so they're watching more television. Kel surprise, the TV is back. But what I think is quite interesting is television still plays something of the central role in people's lives. You watch a lot of it, even if some of the ways in which people are watching television are changing. 
But for whatever reason, televisions aren't typically considered as objects. Within design discourse, there seems to be a tendency to say, well, they're not objects, they're screens. And I wanted to look at that a little bit, because that's always struck me as odd, this idea that a screen is not an object. To my mind, that's completely wrong. It is an object performing its function. It's it's an unusual object, but an object all the same. And so the report really was looking into the relatively small number, but I think growing number, of designers who are who are beginning to mess around with that typology a little bit and who are creating some new takes on the television. You trace a history of television design, which is really, it feels kind of encyclopedic. It's, it's really wonderful. And then there's come there's come this point of the flat screen TV, which is almost feels like the ultimate, the like the end goal of of the typology. Uh, but then you identify this this new frontier or this new way in which television manufacturers are trying to sort of diversify, I guess, which is the lifestyle TV. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah. So a lot of the existing histories of the television they really reach that flat screen era and then cut off. They effectively say, and then televisions dematerialized and became screens, and no further consideration was given to the television as an object in your living room. Um, remarkable statement. But then there are a group of designers now, and I think sort of Yves Bahar, Erwan Burelek, Bodo Spierlein, Torsten Veller, Daniel Rebacken, uh, who are all looking at ways in which you might begin to change the television a little bit. And one of those, as you've set out, is this notion of lifestyle. Like, if we're all going to have televisions in our rooms, and they're not really we're not getting away from them, how might they be reconsidered as interior elements, for instance? Because the sort of technology of the screen display technology is already so good. I mean, it keeps improving, but there's no real need. You don't need higher resolution. (laughs) You don't need Mm. these endless technological insights. So that for the first time... It's like already higher resolution than than your eyes can keep up with, isn't it? Yeah, precisely. There's no point in adding further tech features in a sense. So what a number of brands and Samsung are the chief one here and who really started this off have done is look at, well, if we can no longer differentiate through technology meaningfully, maybe it's time to start looking at the design again. I'm more a projector kind of gal myself. Projector, oddly, is, is a lot closer to what people imagined televisions were going to be like from the start so television sort of begins in this victorian science fiction and they they imagined them as literally pictures on the wall really they they weren't embodied objects and Mm. they functioned a bit more like zoom they were it was thought they were going to be ways you could stay in touch with friends or you could tune into an opera or tune in and see what's going on at Niagara Falls. They're they're much closer to like internet technology, but definitely in a lot of those early sci-fi stories, they are, they're more projector-like than they are the televisions we ended up in the 20th century, for sure. I think the final story that we're going to highlight is an interview with the designer, architect, uh, man of many talents, Amir Arbel. He's the co-founder of Bocce, Canadian-based makers of incredible glass objects, lighting primarily. Um, But he's also his, you know, his own renaissance man of a studio and is incredibly 
committed to uh, materials research and materials experimentation and that's something we wanted to talk to him about for for a long time now and we finally we've got the opportunity we've had the materials scientist Anna Plashaisky interview him about his work with copper and glass in particular. Yeah I think Amir is interesting because amongst uh, his fellow practitioners, I'd say he has a particularly marked interest in material science. He's very enthusiastic about that aspect and looking to see what happens when you mess around with certain material properties. And he runs Bocci and his glassworks in Vancouver as something of a lab. He he encourages the glass blowers to try out things. I think they have an ethos that there's no failure or mistakes. Everything should be treated as interesting and looked into and to allow further developments. Um, so we thought it would be interesting to pair him with Anna Pashaisky because I think there doesn't tend to be all that much dialogue between the sciences and the arts, at least in design anyway. And, and Amir is unusual in being quite open to that. Yeah, I think the conversation that, that came out of it is, is extraordinary in terms of what they cover. You know, they talk about material experimentation and accidents and how it relates to vaccine development and talk about uh, how you might harness lightning to, um, to more, more technical stuff about the expansion coefficients of copper and glass and how they're different and what that means for combining those two materials. And there's even, uh, there's even a story about an exploding mouse. That, that, now that was an accident. We should, <laughs> we should specify. Amir is not blowing up mice. He's not a monster. <laughs> no, no. The, the, the... This was an accident at another facility, which Amir does not operate, in which a mouse unfortunately was exploded. No way involved with the exploding mouse, but uh, it's a it's a story that you can learn more about in the interview. Nevertheless, in case you're interested. Yeah. I think it's one other thing it's worth saying is he's an interesting figure for designers because he is extremely experimental and playful. But Bocce is incredibly commercially successful. It's been a really fantastic brand that has enjoyed a lot of success on the market. People like their products. And I think that's quite impressive the way he's managed to balance the two and sort of anchor those experiments and find a way to make them commercially viable. It's not a bad lesson for others to take. And that's a wrap for episode five of The Crit. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks' time. In the meantime, we'd love it if you bought Designer 28, our latest issue. If you have any stories you'd like us to cover on the next episode of The Crit, please do get in touch. You can reach us at thecrit at deseniamagazine.com on email, or you can message us on at thecritpodcast on Instagram and at thecritdesign on Twitter. This episode of The Crit was produced by Evie Hall and edited by Christina Rapatsky. A little bit of retrospective fact-checking, Hans-Ulrich Obrist is not just a curator at the Serpentine Galleries in London, he is the artistic director. Sorry Hans-Ulrich for demoting you. Our jingle is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram. <laughs> <laughs>